Thank you, John Jurovich and Nick Nye, and for your work in creatively capturing part of Joseph's story. In a few minutes, we're going to dive deeper into Joseph's life, but before we do, I want to share two brief but important announcements. Last week, I mentioned that we've begun plans on reopening the facility for in-person worship gatherings. I don't know about for you, but for me, I am so excited to meet with church family, to sing, take communion, engage God's Word, pray, and, and to just see each other. Now, as you can imagine, to go from not meeting in person for a year to meeting again does require some planning and some work, and there's two ways that, that we could use your help. If you consider Scarlet City Church your home, whether you've been here for a number of years or you're one of the many who have joined us during the pandemic, here's two ways that you can help in this transition. First, stay engaged, informed, and bring your, your offer feedback when it's asked. We're sending out a survey to parents and families to, to gauge your comfortability level and just, just beliefs about some of the things as it relates to kids' ministry. And so please take time to fill that out. And if you're, whether you have children or not, we're going to send out surveys gauging uh, interest and ability to serve in the season. And that's the second way you can really make this transition smooth. I want to challenge everybody, if you consider Scarlet City your home, again, whether you've been here for many years or you're brand new, to establish some healthy rhythms of service at our in-person worship gatherings. Now, I say healthy rhythms on purpose because there's some in the church who who know what it's like to carry an unhealthy burden of service at the local church. Many have, whether at Scarlet City or in other churches, many have served beyond their means. And you know you're serving beyond your means when you're doing it all the time, you garner some like identity in it, you feel like you can't say no, and, and honestly, when you just start to get bitter. And so if that's been part of your story, especially recently, I want to encourage you to establish healthy rhythms. To, to not serve every week. Now, in order for that to happen, we need others who maybe haven't served at all to serve at least once a month. Now, there's a variety of reasons that people might not be serving. Maybe you're new to the church, which is totally understandable. Maybe you're new to faith, and so you don't it's just not been a part of your habit. Or maybe you've been one of those people that carry the unhealthy burden. It's like, nope, I'm not signing up for anything because I know what will happen. And, and whatever the reason is, you know, I do think it's important, one, to be a part of a local church, but also to be a part in such a way where you take some ownership in serving. We can all serve at least once a month. Now, again, to move from not meeting for, for almost a year to gathering together will require some work. And so please share your feedback, perspective, comfortability level. And if you're comfortable, please consider serving. Now, again, if you're comfortable, I, if you're not comfortable to meet in person, no pressure. At Scarlet City, we say all the time, we care more about you than what you do. Please don't hear our heart as some like salesman pressure, you know, trying to get you to do do a lot of stuff. I want you to flourish. That's what I want. I want you to be healthy, and I want you to serve in the healthy, appropriate ways. Also, uh, considering um, concerning healthy leadership, I'm really excited to announce 
that Matt Beckler, who has been our interim music director, is having the interim part of that title dropped. Matt is going to be stepping into serving as our part-time music director, music and creative formation director in this next season. And I am so excited. It has been a real joy to work with Matt. And there's two things in particular that I'm really excited about with his leadership. Matt is a creative visionary. He just brings this creative energy to the work that he does. And at Scarlet City, we're a church that wants to creatively communicate the gospel of Jesus. So whether it's song or art or the liturgy, Matt's going to play a part in doing just that. Also, uh, Matt has a lot of experience. He served at uh, mega churches to small churches and everything in between. And so he's really passionate about and has experience in empowering and raising up other music directors. And that's what we want at Scarlet City. As a church that wants to see this, the city of Columbus experience the renewal of the gospel, we need to be making disciples and raising up leaders, raising up church planners, marketplace leaders, and music leaders. So uh, be praying for Matt, for his wife Tiffany, for their son Charlie. And when we can meet in person, tell them you're glad that they're here. With that said, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50. Now we've been in this sermon series, or we started it last week, called Walls. Walls are those seasons and moments in our spiritual journey where we get brought up to the reality of our limitations. And maybe in our spiritual journey, we were someone who uh, learned a lot about God. and We identified with God by learning and having our questions answered. And eventually we hit the wall of mystery and questions that we actually aren't sure if we will ever have answers to. For others, we've related to God primarily as someone who works for God. You know, one of those ministry people who just carries the burden beyond their means and we can kind of identify as someone who gets it done. And then you come to the wall of your limitations. Or, or maybe for you, you're someone who identify with a particular denomination or type of church or community, and then you come to some disillusionment or even questioning, questioning convictions you had in the past. All of those moments, that wall, can be so disorienting. And to move forward, here's the thing that, that ministry has taught me over these past number of years as I've walked with people on their spiritual journey. When you hit that wall, when you experience pain and disorientation, you won't leave the same. Many at the wall, when you experience pain and confusion, they will on the other end leave bitter, wounded, cynical, as we talked about last week, and maybe even reject faith altogether. They just couldn't press through the wall. But others on the other end, after experiencing pain and struggle, dark night of the soul, questions, doubts, can emerge more loving, more gracious, and people of stronger faith. And so I've always wondered, what can lead to the difference? Why do some move away from God and others toward God? Why do some have pain and that lead to bitterness and others eventually develops this grace and compassion and empathy? I believe the answer to that question is right here in the story 
of Joseph. It's right here, and it's summarized in this soul-level, heart-level question that he gets to. So let's read our text. We're going to read in Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, and I'm going to color in some of the details. I'll try to be brief because this is a, a, an expansive story. Joseph dominates the whole uh, back end of Genesis, and so I'm going to summarize it, but we'll begin in verse 15. Verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, now, Joseph's father was Jacob. Joseph was the great-grandchild of Abraham and Sarah, and his dad, Jacob, had 12 sons, and, jo and Joseph was the 11th, so he had 10 older brothers. And so these brothers come to Joseph, and they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge and wants to repay us in full for all the harm we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father gave these instructions before he died. Tell Joseph this, Please forgive the sin of your brothers and the wrong they did when they treated you so badly. Now please forgive the sin of the servants of the God of your father. When this message was reported to him, Joseph wept. Now, what are these sins? What is the wrong that these brothers did to Joseph? In Genesis chapter 37, we see Joseph and his beginning. Now, there's a few things to observe. First, Joseph at the time was the favorite of his father. Joseph's father, Jacob, loved him so much that he gave him a special tunic or cloak or coat, the coat of many colors. Maybe you remember coloring on a color, coloring page in Sunday school. It was a way of, of Jacob saying, I... There is something special about this son, Joseph. Now, as one can imagine, um, when a parent shows favoritism to another sibling, that can just brew uh, uh, jealousy. And so Joseph's older brothers, they just weren't too keen on him. And that was complicated when on one occasion, Joseph has a dream that he is going to be in charge and they will be bowing to him. Now, how would you imagine that's going to go down? Their younger brother says, I had a dream and I'm going to be in charge and each of you are going to be bound to me. It just, it was the last straw. And so they conceived of a plan to get rid of Joseph. They throw him in a pit and then they say, well, why? we could just leave him for dead or we could sell him to be a slave and make some money. So they sell him and Joseph ends up in slavery off to Egypt, away from his homeland, his father, his family, his friends, and sold into slavery. I mean, a low point. We continue in verse 18. Then his brothers also came and threw themselves down before him. They said, here we are, we are your slaves. So again, they're asking for forgiveness for the wicked that they've done. And then they said, we will be your slaves if you just forgive us. Now, why would they say we'll be your slaves? Joseph, in his time in Egypt, has risen from being a slave to being second in command over the entire country. Now, it wasn't a just straight shot up there. There was a lot of pain, a lot of struggle. He had been betrayed again by somebody who he trusted. He ended up in prison for many years. But while in prison, he found favor with Pharaoh because he helped Pharaoh to be able to uh, save up resources for when a famine would come. And Pharaoh, out of gratitude and seeing the, the wisdom of Joseph and God's hand on his life, he puts him in this elevated position. 
And so here they are, a fulfillment of that dream, Joseph's brothers bowing, saying, we would just wish to be your slave. And now let's look at Joseph's response in verse 19. But Joseph answered them, don't be afraid. I love that. Don't be afraid. And here's, here's our question. Am I in the place of God? Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended it for a good purpose. So he could preserve the lives of many people as you can see this day. So now don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little children. And then he consoled them and spoke kindly to them. Now, when I have experienced betrayal, all of which is significantly less than what Joseph experienced, I take the smallest infraction. Someone, you know, I might want to be invited to a birthday party and someone doesn't invite me. And I just think, oh, how could... I'm persecuted. How horrible. I take the smallest infractions and amplify them and respond sometimes in unhealthy ways. Joseph here experiences the highest degree of betrayal and rejection and pain, and yet he's able to emerge gracious, compassionate, a stronger faith. How? How does he do it? It's right here. Am I in the place of God? If you have a hard copy Bible, underline that, highlight that. If you want to memorize a verse for the week, this could be your one. Write it on a card, put it on your car dashboard. If you're getting tattoos of Scripture, maybe this is the one. Am I in the place of God? When we think about why pain and the wall drives some people to bitterness, lack of faith, leaving it all together, and others toward compassion and love and greater faith. It's right here. Am I in the place of God? I want to, exp I want to explore four ways we try to take God's place. Four ways that we, we take God's seat at the table. And when we do, when we replace God with ourselves, when we take God's place, when we take His seat, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to a good thing. Four ways we replace God. First, we replace God by assuming we can be our own moral authority. We take God's seat when we put ourselves at the position of authority on calling balls and strikes as it relates to what's right and wrong in the world. Verse 16, the, the, the brothers come to Jacob, they fall down, they say, please forgive the sin of your brothers and the wrong that they did when they treated you so badly. You see the terminology here. Please forgive the sin of your brothers. To acknowledge sin, this means they didn't just wrong Joseph. They actually wronged God in doing this. And so they ask for forgiveness. This is confession. This is acknowledging that there's a way to treat someone. And selling them into slavery isn't the right way to do it. But they root this confession in God by calling it sin. And this reminds us that, you know, one of the ways we replace God, we take His place, is by 
putting ourselves as the authority figure as it, as it relates to rights and wrongs. This, after all, was the first sin in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, the Satan comes to Adam and Eve. God had said, you can do anything you want, anything. Just don't eat fruit from the knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes and he says, oh, no, you can eat of it. What? See, God is afraid that you will be like him, knowing good from evil. And the serpent was right. The serpent was right. You see, whenever you decide for yourself what is right and wrong, whenever you put yourself at the place to say, you know what, God, you give this command, but nah, you're replacing God with you. Anytime we put ourselves as the authority figure over the commands of God, we are replacing God with ourselves. Now, we could go on and this all day because this is what our culture has done. We look at back at the Bible, we look at previous generations, and in our contemporary Western snobbery, we think, oh, how embarrassing. The things they used to believe, the stuff they used to do, the way they treated, and, you know, we feel the superiority. Now, you know, now we've gotten better. Now we're more enlightened. We've evolved past some of these dated ideas like sin. Oh, so it feels so oppressive. You see, in previous generations, people might disobey God. They might not want to live according to the Bible or embrace God or any of it. They wanted to live their own way. But now, not only do people reject God, they put themselves in judgment on the Bible and in judgment on God. And not only does our Western contemporary culture put, our, put judgment on the God of the Bible, we put judgment on pretty much everybody. We look at every previous generation and think, how could you? We look at other cultures of the world and look at their values and their ethics with just such snobbery. We claim to want to be tolerant. We claim to want to be... We like to think of ourselves as multicultural, and yet we reserve the dominant culture for just our Western 21st century worldview. Not only is that just foolish to think just because... It's my way, it's the right way. But it's also, it's also dangerous. When we take God out of the equation, we place ourselves as the moral authority on all things, then we take judgment into our hands in enforcing those values. One of the ways we replace God is by placing ourselves as the moral authority, the ultimate moral arbitrator, thinking that we are, are the umpire to call the balls and strikes. But also, again, the question, am I in the place of God? Another way we replace God is when we take, we replace God when we hog God's credit. Look at, look at our text in verse 19. After, after his brothers fall down, they're like, we'll be your slaves. Joseph says, don't be afraid. Because they were afraid Joseph was going to like lay down the hammer on them. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant to harm me. But God intended it for a good purpose so he could preserve the lives of many people. As you can see this day. I love this. 
Joseph says, you had an intention. You wanted to harm. God had an intention and a work, and he wanted to redeem. As you can see on this day. Now, I wonder when Joseph says, as you can see, is he pointing to himself? I don't think so. No. He's saying, as you can see. As you can see, we have the resources to bless so many people. And that's not because of me. That's because of God. You know, when you get a little bit of power, you can imagine, I, you can imagine for Joseph how power could get to his head. You talk about rags to riches, man. I mean, from a pit to prison to now the second most powerful person in the most powerful kingdom of the world. You could see how, like, hey, man, I got, I know what's up. And yet he doesn't take credit. Like God had a plan. I'm just, I'm just along for the ride. I'm just, I'm a conduit of God's gracious provision. He doesn't hog credit. We all know what it's like if you play basketball playing with a ball hog. They're, they're the worst. They just dribble the whole time. The game is all about them. They're going to shoot. They're going to dribble. Everybody else just move out of the way so they can play the game. We all know what it's like to have a credit hog at the workplace. Someone who's quick to take credit, take others' ideas, pawn them as their own. They don't share with others. And they do it to elevate themselves. And, and you, you lose trust in them because they're not living in reality. You know, many of us, we don't live in reality. We're deluded by our own successes. And our success can go to our head. And we're tempted when things go good to give ourselves more credit than we deserve. And when things go bad to minimize any involvement. And one of the things we do is sometimes we just move God out of the way. We take all the credit. I mean, think about it. Think about pretty much any ounce of success in your life. God had a hand in it. God breathed life into your being. God gave you a mind to think. He gave you hands and a body to act. He surrounded you with people to train you. God has been working in your story in, in the positive, life-giving ways that have molded you and in the challenging ways that have strengthened you. It's, it's living in reality to come to a place like Joseph to say, you know, I can't take credit for all this. As much as I would like to, I can't. And that applies for us on a personal level, but also on a, on a church level. You know, at, at Scarlet City, our vision is to join God's story of bringing renewal to the city. And we just are one church. We just play a part. We're not. No one church is the movement. You see? You see, Jesus, he's, he is the center. And the church collectively is the means. Not any one church, not any one person. We, we take God out of his place when we take God's credit. Also, we, we replace God with ourselves by thinking we are what people need. By thinking we are the answer. This is what some call the Messiah complex or the Savior complex. Again, look at verse 20. Uh, Joseph's response, As for you, you meant to harm me, but God intended for a good purpose so he could preserve the lives of many people. So he could preserve. 
you know, Joseph sees his act, again, his act as an overflow of God's intended purpose. God wants to save lives. Joseph is one of many means of accomplishing that. You know, especially those of us who are in the helping professions, if you're a counselor, a teacher, a medical professional, ministry, we get into it with desires to help people. But if we're not careful, we can develop this complex where we think that we are the answer, where we think other people's change is all dependent on us. And, and we would be wise to come to a place to say, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? We can teach you, we can, we can help, we can encourage, but at the end of the day, we are only one part of helping. We cannot change people. We cannot redeem people. Are you someone who is tempted to overfunction? Tempted to think that you can save and rescue people? You know, some of the ways that we might discern if that's you is, do you, are you someone who is particularly and primarily drawn to vulnerable people? Do you find yourself only wanting to spend time with those in need? Are you someone who is, struggles to set boundaries, to say no to things? Are you someone who, um, who is concerned with making people happy rather than helping them solve their problems? Do you work harder than the person you're trying to help? It's always a sign. Every counselor knows if, if the counselee doesn't take ownership, then change won't happen. Are you unwilling to accept your limitations? You know, I think in our Western society, in, with some good intentions, we want to help, but in so doing, we actually perpetuate the problem because we, we, we create people to be codependent on us. And that feels good. You know, it feels good to be needed. It feels good for someone to think, oh, I don't know what I would do without you. But in the end, it actually does damage to them and to us. Sometimes helping hurts. We are not the answer. We are not the solution. We can help someone to the degree that we point them to Jesus and empower them to take agency in their life. We replace God. We replace God by seeing ourselves as the ultimate moral authority, by, by taking credit for everything, by the Savior complex. And lastly, we take God's place when we take vengeance in our hands. By taking the seat of judge. Verse 18, his brothers came, they threw themselves down. Here we are, we are your slaves. In verse 19, Joseph answered them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? He's saying, look, why does he say don't be afraid? He says, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not going to take vengeance. He could. He could have them slaves. He could have worse. But he refrains. You see, Joseph knows that only one person really deserves to be in the place of judge. God is a better judge than we are. And when we take vengeance in our hands, we, we remove him from that seat, and it is a foolish thing to do. 
It's foolish for a number of levels. One, we don't know what God knows. God is all-knowing. Also, we sin too, okay? We make mistakes. I mean, Joseph's whole story. You see, God's purpose wasn't just to save others. He was saving Joseph. Because Joseph, when he was younger, was prideful. I mean, to share to his brothers that, you know, he's going to be large and in charge. How did God... How did God humble Joseph? How did God prepare Joseph to become a, a king, to, to become a ruler who could rule with grace and compassion? How did he do it? He brought him low. He brought him low. And so that for Joseph, the pain, the wall, the moments where God feels distant, that's what shaped him. So on the other side, you could say, you know, hey, am I in the place of God? I've been humbled. There's one judge, one judge who is worthy, who knows all, who's worthy, and who can, who can judge without being corrupted by it. Friends, are we trying to replace God? Are we overfunctioning? Rather than imitating God's care and empathy and grace and love, are we trying to be God in all the ways we are created not to be? I want to invite you, I want to invite you to reflect on that truth. Am I in the place of God? Lord, thank you that you are God so that we don't have to be. We don't need to be the ultimate moral authority on all things. We can submit to your word. We can, we can trust your provision even when we don't understand. We can give you credit and not hog it for ourselves needing the, needing the limelight. And we can Take ourselves off the judgment seat, not enact vengeance every time we feel wronged, and trust that you and your compassion and mercy and love will work things out. Thank you, God. Thank you that with you we have a God we can trust, and so we can lay down all the clenched fists that want to hold on so tight. Give us the courage and humility to do that. Amen.